X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland in the state of Oregon. It is Wednesday, February the 24th. It's a good day to subscribe to The Local, a good day to tell a few friends. Today, back in the day, February 24th, 1868, the U.S. House representatives voted to impeach Andrew Johnson. He was the first U.S. president to be impeached during Reconstruction. He had a rocky relationship with Congress, much more liberal than he was. Congress passed the Tenure of Office Act, which stopped Johnson from replacing liberal cabinet officials with his own supporters. Andrew Johnson violated that act when he fired the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Dramatic scene, Stanton barricaded himself in his office while the White House initiated formal impeachment proceedings. Never get we think anybody have to barricade themselves inside a government office until, you know, last month. On February 24th, 1868, Johnson was impeached in the House. In the Senate, Johnson's opponents ended up one vote shy of a two-thirds majority. They failed to convict him. He served the rest of his term. Today, back in the day, February 24th, 1908, the United States Supreme Court made their decision in Mueller versus Oregon. Kurt Mueller owned a laundromat, required that his female employees work over 10 hours a day. Oregon labor laws specifically restricted the amount of hours that women could work, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the state of Oregon. The decision seemed somewhat straightforward. However, it divided the women's movement. Working-class women generally favored the protective labor laws. They argued they shielded women from the industrial stresses that harmed bodies and minds. Other feminists, though, said laws like this rested on stereotypes about men's work versus women's work. Indeed, Supreme Court did argue that women's social role and duty to bear children gave the state a strong incentive to legally reduce their working hours. This problematic court ruling was later supplanted by the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938 and Title VII in 1965. These two pieces of legislation more fully prevent employment discrimination based on sex and gender. It is Black History Month, and today we give a shout-out to Avail Gordley. Avail Gordley was the first black woman to be elected to the Oregon State Senate. She served from 1996 until 2009. Native of Portland, first woman for her family to graduate from high school and college. In the 80s, she was affiliated with the Black United Front, and with them, she helped pass legislation to divest from South Africa's apartheid government and industries. She also became the head of the Youth Service Center for Portland's Urban League. And later, in her time in the legislature, she focused on equity and mental health, education. She fought for Oregon's caucus system to become more transparent. She retired from the Senate in 2009 and published a memoir titled Remembering the Power of Words, the Life of an Oregon Legislator Activist and Community Leader. Today we have an interview with climate journalist Peter Fairley. X-ray. First up, though, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Four years after the deadly shooting of Quanice Hayes by Portland police, the city of Portland has agreed to settle the case. The family of Quanice Hayes, a black teenager killed by Portland police, will receive a settlement of $2.1 million for the lawsuit alleging wrongful death and excessive force. The settlement includes legal fees. It's the largest amount the city has ever paid out for the police killing anybody. Quanice Hayes, age 17, was on his knees, hands in the air, when Officer Hurst shot him three times from 10 feet away. Hayes was the suspect in an armed robbery. Police claimed they believed he was armed at the time. He was not. The officer was not charged for the shooting. In 2019, Officer Hurst told Hayes' family attorney, I think he may have wanted to be killed by police that day. Quanice's uncle, Stephen Hayes, said the family agreed to the settlement as the family is exhausted from the legal battle. He believes the officer had worn a body camera. The case would have received more national attention and may have had a different result. He said it's not different from anything that's happened before. 
The difference is it's not videotaped. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 528 new coronavirus cases, bringing the statewide total to 153,645. The OHA also confirmed eight new COVID-related deaths. Now 2,155 Oregonians have died from the virus. Currently, 165 COVID patients are hospitalized. Almost all residents in Oregon's long-term care facilities have received at least the first dose of the vaccine. That includes nursing homes, assisted living, and memory care facilities. Phil Fogg, CEO of Marquee Companies, owners of several nursing homes, told OPB that vaccinations are their salvation. 27 residents at a Marquee facility in Canby died from the virus during two separate outbreaks. Oregon was one of the last states to open up the vaccine to seniors, but one of the first to offer it to nursing homes. About half of COVID deaths in the state have been tied to an outbreak at either a long-term care or group senior living facility. Fogg hopes that seniors can begin socializing again soon. Quote, they need to be able to go to the dining room. They need to be able to socialize and be together. Voodoo Donut workers have unionized, and now they're asking their employer to recognize that union. The union, known as the Donut Workers United, DWU, asked the company to recognize their union, or they'll file a petition with the National Labor Relations Board. They feel confident they'd win that election if it comes to it. The union was kickstarted in March in response to the pandemic, and since then, the union has fought for more security, shared food with employees, and distributed N95 masks, among other things. Previously, when masks got delivered, they were discarded by the company. The union would also like to see employees who were furloughed last year get rehired. This comes at a time when the public is unsure about downtown Portland. One worker, Lupe Miller, had this to say in a press release. The vote is so that workers ourselves have a legally binding seat at the table to negotiate over our essential work in a dysfunctional downtown that constantly forgets that it's the workers who make this neighborhood run. Everyone wants to write downtown's obituary. I want workers who love and care for each other to write its next chapter instead. Prescribed burns could be expanding in Oregon with smoke management plan revisions. The Environmental Protection Agency is seeking public comment on a matter that could reduce wildfires. Prescribed burns prevent wildfires by the controlled burning of fuel like brush, dead vegetation, and smaller trees. It's a practice that Native Americans have used for centuries. The current smoke management plan has made it difficult to target critical areas as nearby communities could face poor air quality. Those communities, as a result, have an increased risk of wildfires. The revisions to the plan incorporate a community response which notifies people of burns in their area and what the adverse effects of smoke are. The EPA hopes to keep air quality below the federal government's standards while increasing prescribed burns. The period for public comment ends on March 22nd. Apparently, black hair can be legally discriminated against if a workplace or school deems it unprofessional. Representative Janelle Bynum aims to fix that. House Bill 2935, known as the Crown Act, outlaws hair discrimination against black people. That includes hairstyles like braids, locks, and twists. The bill was introduced last spring. A Republican walkout halted it. Representative Bynum says the bill is an act of love for the black community and that Eurocentric beauty standards should not set the norm. Here's her quote. The story that I told myself is that my opponent's hair was straight, 
so my hair should be straight. So they would judge us on the merits of our resume rather than all the projections of radicalism people subject us to based on the way we wear our hair. California and Washington State have already passed similar bills. And finally, some good news. Trailblazer Damian Lillard is ranked third on NBA.com's MVP ladder. That's a five-spot jump from his recent position at number eight. Lillard is averaging 29.8 points a game and 7.9 average assists. Currently, the team is ranked fifth in the Western Conference. Go Blazers. And, that and that's is today's, today's Quick, Quick Six, Six Local, Local rundown. rundown. Big thanks to Sam Smargiazzi for writing the Quick Six today. X-Ray. Now we will hear from climate journalist Peter Fairley. He spoke with host Christine Alexander about his project, Investigate West, focused on Oregon's ambitious climate goals and how the state has fallen short. Here are Peter and Christine. Good morning. You're listening to X-Ray FM. I'm Christine Alexander. My co-host today, Kira Lindenberg, she decided she's going to stick around for this interesting discussion we're about to have with Peter Fairley. He's an environmental journalist who's written for Investigative West, The Atlantic, and Grist. We'll talk about Northwest efforts for carbon emission reduction and how they have fallen short, sadly, of expectations. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Christine and Kira. Nice to have you here. So the title of your article, um, A Lost Decade, How Climate Action Fizzled in Cascadia, has a subtitle that says Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia pledged to slash greenhouse gas emissions in a decade full of big talk and some epic battles. They all failed. Yeah, epic battles. Last year, the Oregon legislature, um, the Republicans walked out over this kind of legislation. Um, So, Peter... What were some of the goals that the Cascadia states had in regards to carbon emissions? So, uh, well, first of all, good good morning. It's good to be here with you. Um, hello, Portland. Um, yeah, so we're, we're looking at Cascadia, i.e. Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia. So two states and one province. And... Um, the yeah, essentially, you know, there was in back in 2007, 2008, when when um, I sort of set my story going, it was sort of a moment for climate change. Uh, certainly in the U.S., we had uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, really decimating New Orleans. We had a, a couple of very hot record hot years, Arctic melting and um there was a, a, a sort of real movement to finally get serious about climate change. And Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia all set some of the first goals um, in North America for you know, deep reduction of greenhouse gases, uh, deep cuts in carbon emissions uh, by mid-century 2050. And um, <clears throat> they also set goals for 2020. Uh, each state and, and province was a little different. Um, BC, British Columbia had the, the deepest, uh, most ambitious goals. Uh, Oregon also had fairly ambitious goals. Uh, Washington, a little less so. And <clears throat> so in Oregon's case, this, the, the legislature said, we are going to get uh, to, by 2020, 
the state will be releasing 10% less greenhouse gas emissions than we did in 1990. And they said by 2050, we'll be at 75% below that 1990 number. And that 1990 baseline comes from global uh, climate negotiations. That's sort of the, the international baseline. And uh, so, and this was, Oregon was, was one of the first states in the U.S., for sure, to have set its own goals. And until recently, you know, remained one of the only ones that had its own goals. Hmm. So uh, maybe we could take a step back and, and talk about carbon emissions. When you talk about carbon emissions and reducing them, does it have anything to do with cap and trade? That's something we heard a, a phrase that was thrown around. Maybe you could tell the listeners what cap and trade is. And does it really have an effect or is it just a way of moving money around? <laughs> so, yes, it has a lot to do with cap and trade. Cap and trade is one policy mechanism to to try and get get a handle on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which are mostly CO2 and methane. Uh, CO2 from burning, mostly from burning fossil fuels, methane from gas leaks, um, also, you know, farting cows. And um, so, in fact, cap and trade is... is is something that the Oregon legislature tried to do all the way back in 2008. Uh, it was, it was, you know, 2007. They set this these goals. 2008, they said we're going to pass this thing called cap and trade. Um, and remember, back then, climate change was a and, and dealing with it was a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. uh, strong, strong support or had been. Uh, strong support from Democrats and Republicans. Cap and trade. The whole idea was was to say, first of all, you know, we're we're releasing a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions today. Let's set a cap. Let's say no more than that. Okay, um, just a hard cap. So we're not going to we're not going to uh, give out you know permits for a lot of new emissions, for example. Um, but instead of instead of saying, OK, we're going to control it at this facility in this way, they said, we'll set up this system where we'll set the cap, we'll give a number. This is how much CO2 can be released in Oregon. And we'll let uh, the market decide where is what's the most efficient you know, place to to allow those emissions to continue. Um, and so, you know, if you're a power plant, you're releasing a certain amount of CO2 because you're burning coal, uh, you would need to acquire permits, acquire permissions uh, to release a certain amount of CO2 under that cap, right? There's only, there's only a certain number of permits allowed because that cap is, is real. And then every year, you, you, you know, let's say the state is auctioning off those permits so that industries have to cobble them together for their operations. Every year, you reduce that cap a little bit, right? And so it becomes a mechanism to squeeze down the CO2 emissions over time. Um, now, what, what happened was, um, and California did pass such a, such a rule, and uh, British Columbia uh, passed something slightly different, which was a carbon tax. So it didn't actually set a cap, but it said, if anybody who releases CO2, you're going to pay a certain extra bit. Uh, and that's going to squeeze down those emissions. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, 
as Hurricane Katrina and, and the melting Arctic created this moment of climate concern, it also got fossil fuel industries pretty concerned about their bottom line. Mm-hmm. And they, they kicked up disinformation campaigns and you know phony grassroots operations. They started talking about how you know, trying to deal with climate change is going to destroy our economy. Um, and you see a very rapid um, re- uh, drop in support for things like renewable energy among Republican voters. Uh, and that, coupled with the, the you know, global financial meltdown in 2008-2009, basically cuts the legs out of, of uh, climate action in the legislature. They never pass cap-and-trade. Uh, they don't pass other things as well, other measures that would have even more directly you know, started cutting emissions. And mm-hmm. so to make a long story short, we end up with the lost decade that I really wrote about in my story where emissions uh, uh, start coming back up again. So our guest today is environmental reporter Peter Fairley talking about his his article, A Lost Decade, How Climate Action Fizzled in Cascadia. Kira, did you have any questions for Peter yet, or should I just keep uh, moving along? Well, I'm really curious about cap and trade. Um, I know it's that's sort of a, a phrase from a bygone era. Do we have any evidence about um, between cap and trade and like you were saying in Cascadia, they've just put a tax on carbon emissions. Do these things work or is this just a way for, you know, I, I think often about like companies that now the big thing is to, um, to talk about how your company is carbon neutral, right? Like I just heard an ad yesterday for these shoes that come with like a printed on the shoe. It says uh, what the carbon emissions is or what the carbon footprint is of these shoes. And then the, the company will turn around and, and uh, offset the carbon emissions, which I feel like we probably need to talk about offsetting carbon emissions just means that like you put a bunch of carbon in the air, but then you also planted a tree. So, Right. Mathematically, it works, but environmentally, I'm not so sure that it works. Um, so, you know, do we have do we have evidence for what actually works? Do these carbon taxes do they actually motivate anyone to put less carbon into the air? And do you see this as a tactic that is going to do any good in the coming up decade? So, I mean, great questions. I think I think the the most important thing to recognize is that cap and trade and carbon taxes are just, uh, they're just a few of uh, myriad options available for guiding economic growth in a cleaner direction. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, we, we have already used others. For example, um, you know, Oregon set limits uh, or set goals for, um, or, and, and mandates for its electric utilities to uh, use an increasing amount of renewable energy, for example, right? Um, and that that has, along with uh, cheap natural gas, has helped to push coal-fired power out of the market, and, and mm. that, that has, has reduced greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so cap and, and trade, which uh, your governor likes to call cap and reduce now, because the trading, the trading it's all about part, marketing. <laughs> the trading part is a little bit more controversial. Um, anyway, those are just a couple of options. I think carbon taxes. Uh, there is evidence that that they do reduce emissions. Um, all things being equal, if 
if a product costs more, it does, you know, uh, make it less attractive to use. It does create more of an opportunity for savings if you can operate by using less fuel. Um, and so, it, you know, it does kind of nudge you in the right direction. But the studies of uh, California, for example, where they do ha have a cap-and-trade program and also in Europe where they have it, um, I think show pretty definitively that in practice, those systems have operated more as a backstop mm, um, interesting. for the other measures that are more targeted, like, for example, um, California, like Oregon, has these zero emissions vehicle uh, rules that you know require automakers to sell a certain amount of uh, you know cleaner cars, battery powered cars. Right. Um, so and and then there are the rules we already talked about about cleaning up power plants. Um, those things have had enough impact that the cap and trade has been sort of in the background. Like you know it it would only kick in. Uh, the emissions have been coming down. Uh, faster than the cap is coming down anyway, and so you know it's more of this. It's more of this backstop. So, um, in the two minutes we've got left, uh, Peter, Peter Fairley, environmental reporter. What? So, if you're considering this a lost decade and that climate action has fizzled in Cascadia, what? What do we do now? What what's what's well, on, what's at stake? What's I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked. Okay, so 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 that was the first article in a year-long series called Getting to Zero Decarbonizing Cascadia, which uh, Investigate West is leading, but we have um, a whole group of great partners including uh, down in in your area Jefferson Public Radio which covers the southwest part of Oregon. Um, and that that year-long series is really about how we can and must uh, decarbonize, how we can get off fossil fuels, um, the the many options available, and, and that are in process um, later than they should be. We did lose a decade, mm. but there's there's a huge amount that's going on just below the the uh, you know radar screen. Um, you know, Oregon has uh, a Daimler plant that's that's building, uh, or it's a VW plant that's building electric trucks. Right, um, those are now being sold down to California, which has tougher rules that require trucks to be cleaner. Um, you know, I, I think you'll see Oregon realize that it has an opportunity to seize there, and will you know tighten its own rules, hopefully, and use its own trucks that it's already building. Um, so there's there are a lot of things like that that are starting, um, or that have you know already been happening, but but just not enough to really bring emissions down. And so that's what we'll be profiling over the year. There really is a huge amount of opportunity. Great. I'm glad that you're talking about these things because about the. Uh, the moves that we are making, and I know a lot of them are happening in California, but that's probably just because um, it's a it's a state of such size that when they 
pass laws like, you know, they have to have zero emission cars and <laughs> the car manufacturers have to actually listen versus Oregon, which we're, you know, we're like, well, we'll buy seven trucks. So please make them electric. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I think there has been this real uh, feeling of the last decade of that everything is very hopeless because you're right. It has been a lost decade. We have, there's been so much environmental propaganda um, and so much backlash to the idea of being of becoming a country that has renewable energy and that that reduces carbon emissions, um, that it's felt very, very hopeless. Um, and I think that's a lot of, you know, why you see these many thousand person marches, uh, you know, people coming to the streets because they want environmental change to happen. I mean, we don't see it happening, but I'm, I'm glad that you've brought these things up that, that it's it's not hopeless. We don't have to. We haven't like reached the point of no return. There are there are moves that we can take. There are uh, emissions that we can bring down. There are electric vehicles that we can put into use. Uh, and there so are hopefully, ferrets that we can clone. There are ferrets that we can clone. And so hopefully, the decade moving forward is going to be the decade that we make up for lost time. Right on. Yep. Peter, yeah, thank you definitely. for joining us. We appreciate it. Environmental reporter Peter Fairley, uh, he's got an ongoing sis- series, A Lost Decade, How Climate Action Fizzled, but that's only the beginning, so um, check him out. Um, Decarbonizing thank- Cascadia. Decarbonizing Cascadia. Thank you very much. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks to Peter for joining the local. Thanks to today's lead writer, Sam Smargiasi, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.